You may turn in your pew Bible or your own Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 979. Everybody's well aware by this time what we're talking about is what Luther termed household codes, um, how a Christian family ought to conduct themselves or arrange themselves. And these instructions are specifically written to Christians and Christian homes. But even a home that is not Christian, if they apply these principles, or if a culture applies these principles, they will be better off for it. Uh, it will produce a more moral, altogether society and culture than if you disregard these, uh, these instructions that Paul gives. But to be clear, if you're not a Christian and you put these into good practice, while it may make for a better family and a better neighborhood and a better country, it will not gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Because our entrance into the kingdom of heaven does not depend on how good we are at keeping certain rules or admonitions or principles or commandments. Our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is solely based upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, or, uh, Martin Luther calls these household codes, but this week, as I was, I always read a little bit more than what I read the week before, and I saw that several uh, pastors, instead of calling these household codes, kind of put it in, uh, in light of the sitcom that Tim Allen was involved with, Home Improvement, and they titled their series, Home Improvement, according to Ephesians chapter 5.22 through chapter 6, verse 9. And there's a lot of truth in that as well. This is all about how to improve your home, especially a Christian living in a Christian home. Home improvement principles. It looks like this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We've already spent two weeks on part of those verses. We're going to wrap it up today. I'm pretty confident of that. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, I think we'll wrap it up today, and then we'll move on. In these household codes, Paul has already dealt with wives and husbands. He's now, in pretty obvious, he's dealing with children and parents, particularly fathers. And then next week we will uh, push into... Uh, servants and masters, or bond servants and masters, or slaves and masters, depending on uh, how we're going to understand the word that Paul uses there. That's how the household codes will wrap up. Let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll review a little bit about where we've been, and we'll push forward into where we're going. God, our Father, I thank you, as we've already sang and all we've already prayed about, uh, that we have an opportunity to gather in your name and and we desire that your spirit would teach us out of your word what is true and how it applies to our homes, uh, our children, how it may apply to us as parents. God, I pray that you would impress what is right on our hearts and that we don't just look at it, look at it uh, apart from ourselves, but as participants. We are called to certain paths of obedience and I pray that we'd be wholly committed by your goodness and by your grace to be the men, the women, 
the parents and the children that we ought to be in light of who Christ is. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Backing up just a little bit. Back one. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Reason number one that Paul gives is this is the natural order of things. This is by God's design from the beginning of creation. That children would be structured underneath their parents and that they would live lives of obedience. We've already established that. We've talked about it for two weeks. So I'm going to press on, but I'm going to add a a new little thought here by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a professor of literature. He had positions both at Cambridge and at Oxford, so he was in England. He wrote uh, some 40 books. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which people still widely read today. He wrote Mere Christianity, which people still widely read today, among screw tape letters. Lots of books he wrote. Really quite a brilliant man. He started off as an atheist for a lot of years. He wound up recognizing and discovering that Christ is exactly who he said he was. And he had to repent of his sins and place his faith in Christ. And he became quite a defender of the gospel and Christianity to the best he understood it given his upbringing. But one of the terms he coined, uh, and in coining this term, he's, he's talking about something that has always existed, but he kind of gave it a, a new term. He, he talked about something called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is widely prevalent in our day and age. Chronicle, uh, chronological snobbery is to think that we are the enlightened people. We're in the 21st century, which means all the centuries before us were before us, therefore beneath us. Chronological snobbery is that we understand science better than anyone else has ever understood it. We understand history better than anybody else has ever understood history. We understand God and religion and ourselves better than anybody else has ever understood it. All those other people, they were kind of dim-witted. They were kind of slow. They were basically idiots. But we've arrived and we have the truth. That's chronological snobbery. One of his quotes in that regard reads this way. We all progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means turn right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. I'm going to put that on Facebook today, or tomorrow if I'm slow. We live in such an age where we think we've made so much progress, but if it's the wrong road, progress is turning back to the right road where you should have never left. And that would actually be true progress. Uh, To put it in terms a different way, from the Interpreter's Bible, uh, which is a set of commentaries published in 1953. I am forever indebted to Debbie Webb for getting these to me. She bought them at some resale shop. She wanted to know if I'd be interested in them. If you don't know Debbie Webb uh, and and you find out who she is, she will try to unload things on you. And so she, she gave me this set of interpreter Bible commentaries, which I'd seen in used bookstores because uh, they're not terribly hard to find. But I, I kind of, I basically had chronological snobbery. I thought, ah, oh, they're from 1953. Uh, they're basically put out by uh, 
a Methodist publishing house, they can't be that good. Uh, but I took them, and I, it's a wonderful discovery because they have so much truth, and they are so interesting, and it gives you such a beautiful snapshot as to what they were thinking in 1953. So regarding this verse, uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, and really verses 1 to 4, Here's, I'm going to show you a couple slides as to what they say about children in 1953 and parenting. It goes like this. Modern psychological science has probably no triumphs to its credit more valuable than the explorations of the mental and emotional life of the child. Now, I've edited it just a little bit for clarity. Christian parenting, if wise will avail itself of this additional knowledge, though it will subject it, the additional knowledge, to the criticism of the gospel. Modern science has much to say concerning the rights of a child. Hence, psychologists may well plead liberation of childhood and schoolroom tyrannies once accepted as normal by earlier generations. All right? That's, that's kind of interesting. What they're saying, uh, to make it simple, I've had days to think about this, what they're saying is that we can gain a lot. In 1953, they're saying we can gain a lot from some of the progress that's come from modern psycho psychological science. The children have real feelings. They're real persons. They have real emotions. And they shouldn't just be bullied about or herded about as if they're not real people. And we, we have a lot to learn there. And so there are some parental and schoolroom tyrannies or demands that really aren't treating them the way they ought to be treated as real people and individuals. And that's fair. That's true. In other words, there is progress to be made there. That's a good thing. But in 1953, in the Interpreter's Bible, they're not going to go so far as to say, we're going to jettison the past. We're going to ignore what we've already learned they're going to say, let's take this additional understanding that we have and, and keep it moored to what we already know to be true. So the second page reads this way. But to absolutize child freedom is in its turn... If adult human nature is not angelic and therefore not to be trusted with tyrannical powers over the child... A child is not an angel either. A child merely exhibits our human inheritance of original sin in pygmy size. So this is understanding what C.S. Lewis calls two ditches. That there are always two errors you can fall into. One is to give all authority, all tyranny to the parent. They rule over the child as if the child is not an individual that doesn't deserve a certain amount of respect and love and care and attention. The other ditch is to say parents don't, uh, don't have that at all. The child is an end to himself. Let him decide everything that he wants to do. It's up to him. That's the other ditch. And it rightly points out that we inherit a sin nature. And so we, we tend to be selfish and abuse the power we have. But if you give that to the child, guess what? They've got the same sin nature. And they will take every advantage of the new power that they're given 
to also exhibit sin in wonderful, delightful ways that are in disregard of what God commands. So this is a wonderful balance in 1953. The last page reads like this. Christian insight knows that both adult and child need the restraint of law. The non-Christian psychologist knows this also, though the fact is something of embarrassment. What law? In a society allegedly emancipated from the law of God, the commandment, honor thy father and mother, has only fluctuating in relative value. 1953, what, what wonderful thoughts, what wonderful balance, what wonderful insight that if society has progressed so far that we don't need God's commandments for family, husbands and wives, children and parents, if we don't need God's commandments, then even these, these non-Christian psychologists know we still need some structure and order, but where does it come from if not from God? Does it come from your own society, your own culture, your own neighborhood, your own family? then how does any one standard get judged by anything? Because if it's true to you, or if it's true to your family, or if it's true in Hitler's Germany, or if it's true in, in 21st century America, what does it get judged by? And so it's something of an embarrassment to a, to a secularist that is throwing out the idea of a God who communicates not only himself, but structure for society and families. That's a, that's a wonderful example of chronological snobbery. So that's reason number one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. That is old school. That's old school. Uh, that's traditional. That's the way most of society has always functioned. And it's right. It's right. Reason number two is revealed law and order. So he goes from the way God naturally created things from the beginning to, in fact, it's also a specific commandment given by God on those two tablets of stone given to Moses on the top of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Commandment number five is, is exactly honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you that you may live long in the land. And the big difference we looked at last week, Paul writes children to obey Moses received a commandment, honor your parents. And the difference there, to recap last week, Paul is writing to Christian homes and households. And so the assumption there, or the driving element there, is he's writing to an intact family living under the same roof, children growing up, and they're to obey. But those same children that are to obey in the home eventually grow up and become adults in their own right, start their own families, and they're no longer called to obey, but they're called to honor their parents. Because honoring your parent is a lifelong obligation in Israel culture, in Israelite law, in Mosaic law. In God's order of things, you obey when you're a, child, a minor, and when you grow up, you you have a lifelong obligation to honor your parents. Now, that looks different in different situations. He doesn't give us every detail. What does that look like in my situation? Given my parents, I had a terrific relationship with my father. My relationship with my mother was estranged for a lot of years towards the end, and it was more difficult. 
I still was obligated to honor her. And in the best of my ability, the way I understood it, I, I made an effort to honor her uh, as long as she lived. But it looked different, and you might question that. I don't think you honored her enough, or you may think that's more than I would have done. I don't know, but that's, God will judge me. Uh, did I honor my mother as I should, given my set of circumstances? I know I was called to do it. You are called to honor your parents, whatever that may look like. And may God give us grace and understanding what that ought to look like in our own individual situations. Reason number three is uh, a positive motivation. So he's kind of given you these two laws. It's natural. It's specially revealed by God. But here's a, I don't know, if I, to say it's a selfish motivation really isn't right, but it communicates what I'm, the gist of what I'm trying to say. The positive motivation is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's a positive motivation why you should do this. It kind of reminds me, my mentor... Uh, for really understanding the Bible, uh, somebody who in some ways discipled me just because I went to his church when I was in college the first time back in Cedarville in Ohio, Grace Bible Church, Pastor Marv Wiseman, which is a great name to be a pastor, Pastor Wiseman. <clears throat> I'm Clifford the Big Red Dog. He was, cl he was Pastor Wiseman. But uh, I remember once asking him, because I'd run different questions by him, and I remember once asking him the question, like, Shouldn't Christians just obey because God says to obey? Like, God gives us all these commandments. Uh, he tells us what the Christian life should look like, what holiness and godliness looks like. Shouldn't that be enough? And he's like, well, does the Bible tell you that there's rewards for obedience? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, then I think that's a reason. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess it is. I mean, even if there weren't rewards for obedience, I have reason enough to obey. But the Bible does offer rewards for obedience. Uh, there are rewards in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven. You will be rewarded as, according to your own faithfulness with what God entrusted you to. So there's value in this positive motivation. But how in the world should we understand that it may go well with you that you would live long in the land... I'm going to put that off till the end. Because if we look at verse 4, it will help us understand the promise in verse 3, at least in my own mind, I find it very satisfying. You can decide for yourself and quiz me after, uh, after I'm done teaching and whether you agree or whether you uh, want to give it some other nuance. So let's move on to verse 4. We'll come back to verse 3. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Why are fathers singled out? Paul doesn't tell us why fathers are singled out. So I can only guess as to why, and, and maybe to be fair, I will say that a lot of commentators say, it says fathers, but it could, you know, we should understand that as parents. But I think if he wanted to use the word parents like he did in verse 1, he would just reuse the same word here and say, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. He doesn't. He uses the word, it's a masculine word, it means fathers. Don't provoke your children to anger. I should also say, it doesn't mean that mothers can say, well, I can provoke my child to anger because it says fathers. Uh, I don't think it means that either. But here the instruction is explicitly given to fathers. 
I'm going to speak in, in a generalization. This isn't always the case. I know exceptions to the case. But generally speaking, fathers are more stern and disciplinarian than mothers. It's not always the case. It may not be your case. You maybe didn't grow up in a home like that. But there are more instances where fathers are sterner and tend to be more the disciplinarian than the mother. So given that, that's a generalization, it kind of stands to reason that they are probably more apt to provoke their child to anger. A second possibility as to why they are singled out is simply because fathers are entrusted with the character and welfare of the home in a sense more than mothers. Because the father is the head of the household, he's the head of the wife, together they are equal partners, but one is taking the lead more than the other, and given that, he is more responsible for the tenure, the makeup, the character of the home. And so he specifically would be warned. How might a father provoke or discourage a child? And discourage in there because Colossians has some of these same household codes. And instead of talking about don't provoke your child to anger, Colossians says, lest it lead to their discouragement. So fathers are warned, don't provoke your child to anger. Don't don't, uh, discourage them. Provoke discouragement in them. By the way, it doesn't say don't make them angry. It says don't provoke that. Uh, I think a father or a mother, I think any good parent, there are going to be times where their child's going to be angry with them. Because my number one goal when my kids are growing up uh, is not to be their best friend, it's to be their leader, their, their father. And so there are times they're going to be really angry with me. And, and John Roseman talks about this, and his son would push back with him, and he would be like, son, if I were your age, I would feel the exact same way. I'd be just as angry as you are. And when you calm down, if you want to talk about it, we'll do that. But for now, I, under, I understand you're angry, uh, but the rule stands. A child being angry is not the same as provoking a child to anger. The only other time, uh, this idea of provoking to anger, the only other time it's used, it's only used twice in the New Testament. I'm sure there's instances in the Old Testament in the language of Hebrew. But in the New Testament, provoking to anger only occurs twice. Fathers don't provoke your children to anger. And in Romans chapter 11, God says, I'm going to provoke Israel to anger. Kind of interesting. I'm going to provoke Israel to jealousy because I'm going to bring the gospel to Gentiles and it's going to provoke them. And God means to do it, but he's God, I'm not. Fathers are told, don't provoke your child to anger. So how does provoking, what might that look like? There are more answers than what I'm going to throw up on the screen. I'm going to give you four categories of possibilities. I think a father might provoke his child to anger by being overly stern, demanding, and restrictive. This is all rules and really no mercy, no kindness, no understanding, no reaching out, no tenderness. It's just all about the rules. Making sure that my rules stand. It will be my rules. It's my house. I'm paying the bills. 
I'm the, I'm the father, and, and that kind of sternness can provoke a child to discouragement. It can provoke a child to anger. That would be one way. A second way would be to be demeaning and critical. That no matter what your child does, it's just not quite good enough. Or it's not meeting your expectations. Or it's not measuring up. Uh, Sometimes fathers, I don't know, parents in general, but a father, it's possible that a father wants their child to succeed in ways that they failed. And so I push hard to try to get my child to do what I couldn't do. And in the meantime, when he, if that child fails, I could be demeaning and critical because I'm pushing to get that child conformed in the image that I've got for them. Which I don't have this on the screen, but it reminds me of probably one of the best-known proverbs in the book of Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. I do not think, I think what that's saying is, you find out what your child's natural bent is, and you encourage it. It's not a promise that if you follow a certain formula, that your child is going to be this wonderful, godly missionary who plants churches all over the world. I don't think it's that kind of a promise. What it's saying is, don't make your child conform into the image you want for them. Find out what God wants for them. Train them up that way, and it will serve them all their life long. I think that's what the promise is about, but that's for another time and another day. A third way that a father can discourage or provoke a child to anger is being, by being arbitrary and inconsistent. Which dad do we have today? Is it the kind, understanding dad that uh, you can talk to, uh, you can reason with, uh, you can make pleas before and, and ask him to do certain things, or is it the kind of dad that's going to blow you off because he's having a bad day? Which dad do I, am I dealing with today? Which dad is it where on one day, if I do that certain thing, I'm in big trouble, and another day it doesn't seem to bother him at all? Those types of things can be discouraging to a child because they never know where the boundary is. They never know what the rule is. They never know what's right and what's wrong because it changes so much. These are the things that Paul is talking about that are discouraging to a child and can provoke anger in a child. And he tells fathers in particular, don't do those things. Don't do those things. If that's your tendency, recognize what it is and then take steps to correct it. And one of those steps is asking in humility for forgiveness when uh, you've been one of those things. Then the last way that I would suggest that uh, a father can be discouraging to a child or provoke a child to anger is by by being neglectful and inattentive, which is kind of the opposite ditch of the first three. In this case, you've got a father who might think, well, how, how in the world could I provoke my child to anger? I don't have anything to do with my child. I'm an absent father. But children need their fathers. Children need their fathers to step in and engage them and be leaders to them and trainers of them and to teach them right from wrong. Fathers or children need that. And when a child is absent and inattentive, it provokes anger. It provokes discouragement. This shouldn't be hard to figure out because back before we resumed Ephesians, when we were in Samuel, this was exactly the problem of King David with his adult son, Absalom. 
David, with his adult son Absalom, was neglectful and inattentive as to the sin that was happening in his own family. And rather than addressing that sin and engaging what needed attention and correction, David withdrew. And Absalom became very angry and bitter. So angry, so bitter, that he rose up against his father David to kill him and take the kingdom. Absalom failed. Absalom was the one who died. David was the one who mourned. But in that case, you've got another example of a father provoking and discouragement in a child. Even in this case, an adult child. And, and uh, Paul says, fathers, don't do that. What should a father do? In verse 4, he tells us three things a father should do. Three things. It's very easy to see two of those things. He's told us what not to do. Don't provoke your children to anger. But then he tells you, here's three things you ought to do. The first thing is kind of hidden in the text because of the way it's translated. The first thing he tells fathers to do is bring up them. There are two different words in the Greek. We've got it separated in my English translation, bring them up. But the bring up is a verb, and the them is the object. It's them, the children. So it's bring up them. That's the first thing they should do. I'll talk about that. The second thing they should do is discipline them. And the third thing that they should do is instruct them. Those three positive things are what fathers are charged to do. Bring them up, discipline them, and instruct them. Number one, to bring up them. That is a word that means to feed or to nourish. To feed or to nourish. It's giving this idea of gentle care and attention. That's how he starts off. Fathers are not to be so stern, so disciplinarian, so gruff, that they're not tenderly leading and nourishing and bringing up. It's a word that's only found two times in the New Testament. And fortunately for us, the second time it's used is only one chapter away. So look at chapter 5 and verse 29. Chapter 5 and verse 29, well, if I back up to uh, verse 28. It reads, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies... He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but, here it is, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So, in verse 29, a husband, he, cherish, he nourishes himself, and by implication, that's what Christ does for the church. Christ nourishes the church. A husband nourishes himself. And it's saying now to fathers, you need that, to express that same gentle care and attention to your own children. To treat them as real people. Individuals with needs, emotional needs, psychological needs if you want to use the word. Spiritual needs, physical needs. Care for them. Be devoted to them. Treat them with kindness. That's rule number one for fathers. The second thing fathers are told to do is to discipline them uh, in the Lord. Uh, to nourish them, discipline, nourish them in discipline of the Lord. Uh, 
If I take that word discipline, look it up in a, in a Greek dictionary, what does the word mean as it translates over? The number, number one word that ought to, be equi- ought to be associated with discipline is training. Fathers should nurse their children and they should train their children. According to, it's actually a different dictionary than the one I have a picture for. That's just a really good picture. Uh, but it's the same type of a dictionary. It breaks it down that this training can include seven, di- seven different types of, of training. It's, training looks different depending on the situation. It looks different depending on the child. So according to a different Greek dictionary, the training is through correction, punishment, law. It's training through grace. It's training through authority, tribulation, and judgment. All of those can be found in the New Testament. That kind of training. That kind of discipline. There's the discipline of grace. And there's the discipline of law. There's the discipline of judgment. And there's the discipline of punishment and correction. All of that can be found in the New Testament. It's used, I think, just under two dozen times in the New Testament. But remarkably... Eight of those times occur in one single passage of Scripture. So if you want to know what does it mean for a father to discipline his children, to train them, there's one passage you can look up in your Bibles, and there will be eight uses of that word that will give you a wonderful example of what it means to discipline your children. I'm wondering if anybody's guessing, like, where would that be in the New Testament? Eight times in seven verses the word is used. A third, more than a third of the times it occurs in the, New, <coughs> in the New Testament occur in this single passage of Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. And it reads like this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's the first five. Now, when God disciplines, number one, this discipline is associated with being reproved. It's that kind of training. It's, it's, I am willing to discipline my child. I will reprove my child. The second time it's used, it, it is in association with he loves his child. So God's discipline is associated with reproving and love. A father's discipline in the earthly sense ought to be associated with I'm willing to reprove because I'm willing to love. It also talks about the one he loves and chastises. That's literally the word scourges. I'm sure it's not translated scourges because the Bible doesn't advocate for this stern whipping of a child that is abusive. But in in the right sense, there is a way in which the Bible talks about corporal discipline. And that's actually the word that's used with the Lord, disciplining, scourging every son whom he receives. Discipline is something that is going to have to be endured. In other words, we don't like it. 
I don't like being disciplined by the Lord. I didn't like being disciplined by my parents. But if they loved me, they disciplined me and reproved me because it was, it was an expression of their love and my need. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, you're illegitimate children and not sons. Those are the first five. Three more. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits? And They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us, and I didn't highlight that word because it's not actually in the Greek text. Uh, Bible translators provided it to make the sentence read smoothly. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the, moment, all disi- for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's the way God disciplines his children. And he is the pattern for fathers disciplining their children in the Lord. We do the best we can uh, for a short time as deems best, and we fail. Fathers don't get it perfectly right on earth. God does. But the point being, because we love our children, because we want to nourish them and feed them and grow them into the individual's that God intends them to be, we have to be committed to it to the best of our ability. And by the grace of God, it will bear fruit. All right, let's go back and do the third positive instruction. We're to bring up, we're to, and fathers are also to bring them up in instruction of the Lord. This is the noun, as it translates from Greek, it's nuthetia, and the verb is nuthetio, That's a compound word, this word that's translated here as instruction. It's a compound word. The first part of the word, this N-O-U part, N-O-U part, is is a word that means mind. The second part of the word, the thetsia, or the thetio, is a word that means to put in place. So when it talks about instruction here, it's talking about to put in the mind. A father is to put in his child's mind what the Lord says. To put in the child's mind what God has revealed is true in his word. To put in his mind right from wrong, truth from error. The word's found about a dozen times in the New Testament. On almost every occasion, it's translated to admonish or to warn. A father's job is to warn their children when they're straying from where they ought to be. A father's job is to admonish them and encourage them and push them into the straight and narrow road where God is intent, intends them to be. Those are our three words summarizing. God specifically charges fathers with cultivating godliness in a Christian home. Specifically, the charge is given to fathers. I do not think it's wrong for a father to delegate a lot of some Whatever measure of that responsibility to mothers, uh, churches can support that, schools and teachers can support that. You want to support the values uh, that a father is trying to instill based upon God's word. There can be other means of support, but a father doesn't get to just discharge the duty. 
He supervises the process, and he fundamentally is the one responsible, but he doesn't get to completely just discharge the duty and, and pass it off on somebody else. Fathers can be, uh, I, in some ways as a father, it was, it's much easier for me to teach them to be competitive, to involve them in some uh, sporting activity. Maybe you're a father that taught your kids uh, how to drive a car. You were the one rather than mother. Uh, maybe you're the father that taught your kids uh, to hunt or to, uh, to fish. Uh, my father didn't teach me that. He wasn't a hunter or a fisher. He was a gardener, so he taught me how to garden. I mean, fathers teach a lot of things, but the one thing the Bible teaches fathers to teach is teach them about God. Not driving to Sunday school. The fa- fathers are charged with instructing your children. Put in their minds what God says. Care about your child enough to tell them what is most important to life and eternity. Now, let's go back to honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. In this picture, we've got grandparents or the parents of, uh, we'll say, the kids there. I guess one of them has to be a son-in-law and father-in-law and daughter-in-law. But you've got three generations there. So there's some honoring going on there to honor the parents These children are to obey their parents. The parents are charged with a certain responsibility of of bringing up and training their children. Bringing up and instructing, putting in their children's mind what God says is true. But it's kind of an imperfect process. It's a little bit messy because we're all still fractured people. We all still have sin natures. And yet there's still this promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I think the answer to the promise is the promise is to be understood in terms of a proverb. And in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is a book of probabilities. Probabilities and Proverbs are if you live your life according to these Proverbs, according to this wisdom, here's the outcome you can expect. It's not a guarantee. You know what? The righteous suffer. Sometimes you can do it all right and you're your family experiences trauma and hurt and pain. That's, that's another part of the Bible. But the Bible also deals with probabilities. And the probabilities are, if you conduct yourself according to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, here's what you can expect. Here's the probability you can expect. And so if we go to Proverbs, we're going to find out what those probabilities look like. I'm going to show them to you kind of rapid fire on the screen. And then we'll open it up for comments and questions to try to get this family as, as much together and intact as we can by, the, by this proverbial wisdom. Proverbs is full of this. It starts off this way in chapter 1 and verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. That's getting us off on a really good foot. Fathers and mothers instructing teaching, and the child being told to listen. Listen, because this is going to set the course of your life. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Again, you've got this relationship where the father is instructing his child, and the child is learning and benefiting from what he's hearing as he puts it into practice. 
Chapter 3, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That's the promise. That's the probability. If you listen to this, this father who's pouring God's wisdom and his own life lessons of grace and mercy and pain because of his sin, as he's pouring those lessons into the child, the child, as he receives those, benefits and has this probability, probable outcome of length of days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. Chapter 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. What was quoted back in Hebrews 12. Chapter 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. Keep my commandments and live. Verses 20 to 23, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them with your heart for life to them find them. And keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Father and son relationship, and the father is pouring out God's wisdom and these life lessons. And as the child listens, they're... He will find them life-giving. Because out of the heart, as the heart is shaped and molded by the truths of God, out of the heart flow the springs of life. Chapter 5, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. Chapter 6, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down... They will watch over you, and when you awake, they will talk with you. As the father, as the parents are pouring in this truth into their child, it's good for all of life and all of life's situations. All things that can be encountered are contained within these truths that are being poured in and invested into the children who have to hear and they have to be attentive and they have to put it into practice. But from a parent's standpoint, it has to start with them doing the work of of investing in the child this truth. Chapter 7, my son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. The fear of the Lord prolongs, but the ears of the wicked will. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of In chapter 19, verse 18, discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Paul puts it in these terms, this promise, all those Proverbs, puts it into uh, the terms of the commandment, honoring your father and your mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Kent Hughes pastored up at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois for a lot of years. He's since retired. I think he lives back in California again. He talked about several ways that this is very, in very real tangible ways, fleshes itself out. That is, 
a parent can warn a child of certain foolish decisions and dangers. I mean, if anything, my parents should have warned me of, of a lot of foolish uh, decisions and dangers I put myself in. By God's grace, uh, I stand today, but what I deserve for some of my foolishness, uh, I, I really wouldn't be here today. I, I drove a car not a very smart way. Uh, I had a really fast car for a while, and I was really foolish in, the, in the, a lot of the decisions I made. So I could have wound up, I could have been one of those people winding up like Brian Earle's uh, fines, and it's not a good situation because of the foolish decisions I made. I would have, I would have possibly, it would have been good for me to have been warned more sternly about some of those decisions and some of the friendships you make, some of the decisions, some of the friendships, some of the places you're going to go, how late you're going to be out is you listen to a father or a mother's wise instruction, you know what? It really does prolong your life. By the grace of God, the probability is your character will be developed in such a way it will serve you lifelong, and that will be to your benefit. Because if you fall into the, with the wrong crowd and, and the other parents were warning their child the same thing, you're the wrong crowd to somebody else's parent. You know, that other child is the wrong, the wrong crowd to your parent. But uh, as you develop this character, it will serve you lifelong, and you will be in a better spot at the end of the day. When, when we homeschooled initially, and we did all three, we homeschooled our children. Uh, we had a year of private school, which for us didn't work out well. And then both my boys graduated from Mount Zion High School. So I've done all three. There's pros and cons. You can weigh that out how you like. But when we homeschooled, our number one objective was to teach character to our kids, not content. Content is second to character. I don't care how much content, how smart they can be, and how well they can score on a test. If their character isn't being developed, that's really not the goal of education. The goal of education is to develop godly character. You can't guarantee it. There is no formula that guarantees that that godly character. But that's the job. That's the goal. And by the grace of God, at the end of the day, God's grace will win the day. What are, we get our family intact as you observe these things. The family looks more whole than it might otherwise. What are your comments and questions? Rick. Well, there's, there's nuance. There's nuance to the child. There's nuance to the situation. And the Bible intends it to be that way because there is no, oh, they've hit that age. Now you do. It just doesn't work like that. They're, they're individuals and they're very complex. So there is a trend. John Stott talks about that. There's a transition. Like when do, when do you move from obeying to honoring? And in every culture, there is a transition. And it occurs at different times in a little bit different ways. You know, as, as our kids grew up, we gave more freedom as they got older. Like, we didn't, we didn't hover to the same degree where there were rules and right and wrong, and you enforce those rules, and, and there's slaps on the hand or whatever the case may be. It was more disciplinarian. But as they get older, there's more freedom because you want them to, to use their freedom wisely without guarantees. And what that exactly looks like is going to vary from parent to parent, family to family. It just is. Uh, but to be aware of it, and by God's grace to navigate it to the best of your ability, even though we will fail at different points along the way. Joe Ash? 
Yeah. I can give you the, I mean, if you, if you actually want from the, the uh, lexicon dictionary, this is, this is the seven ways on here. I'll give you this sheet. Yep. Uh, it'll give you examples of that. Somebody else? Anyone? I mean, talk practical stuff. Oh, my goodness, this is practical stuff. Uh, parenting is hard work. That's why we ought to pray. I mean, if I, if I could do anything different with the kids, like the one thing I should have done more is uh, pray more, really. is by the grace of God any of us turn out halfway, halfway functioning in society. Uh, and so I think prayer... I wish I'd, if anything, I wish I'd devoted myself to more prayer. God, be merciful to us sinners. Be merciful to our family. Uh, you know, my own, my family growing up, I grew up with three siblings. Uh, it's been quite an adventure. You know, my brother in Florida, he went down to Florida. He was not a believer. Uh, but he wound up coming to Christ. And I know my family was, my, my mother and father weren't happy with his decisions and the way he was going. But... I knew he was raised in such a way, and I would try to encourage them because they they had thought some had gone down some pretty dark paths. And I'm like, uh, I I can't guarantee what the outcome will be, but I know the way he was raised, and I know what he was taught in his heart regarding the gospel and the truth of God. And so, just pray that God would would bless that to their salvation. And he wound up becoming a becoming a Christian. wasn't in our timing. That's not our timing, but at the end of the day, that's what happened, and uh, I think that's a really good prayer. Somebody else? Anyone? Yeah, Mike. Cole. 1972 Barracuda. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I think last week I talked about a series of three wrecks, and the third one I totaled the car that was the Barracuda, and all three, the one that I wound up totaling, flying off the road, uh, totally in the car, and then I bought a Vega, <laughs> which I just talked about with some guys that, you know, when I had this Vega, it was the first, alu- first production aluminum block engine ever made, Chevy. I had a Vega. It was also my first manual transmission, and, I, and this was literally the truth. My roommate and I both had Vegas. Uh, I think I bought it for like 600 bucks. It was not much, but... Uh, I had to carry a case of oil in the back of the hatchback and put a quart of oil in about every 60 to 75 miles. And once we had to stop at a farmer's house to get some oil, and he thought we were coming for gas. I'm like, no, we're fine on gas, but could we borrow a quart of oil? And I called it Puff the Magic Dragon because it was always blowing blue smoke out the back. So I went from a Barracuda to a Vega where if I had to go up a hill living in Ohio, like, you know, you wanted to get all you could going down the hill because by going up the hill, you would be losing miles per hour. Like, it didn't make any difference. It's just the way the car worked. But God was good that he gave me that car. All right, let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Enough.